Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 57, hazard number one, radiation. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, NASA scientists, engineers, and astronauts, all to let you know the coolest information about what's going on right here at NASA. So today, uh, this podcast, this episode, is part one of a five-part series on the hazards of human spaceflight. So a human mission to Mars is extremely complex and um, challenging and has hazards such as radiation, isolation and confinement, distance from Earth, gravity, and hostile and closed environments. And they're being studied in ground-based analogs here on Earth, in laboratories, and of course, on the International Space Station. So so today we're going to talk about that first one, radiation. And we're talking with Zarana Patel, a portfolio lead scientist here at the Johnson Space Center. Zarana is responsible for management and scientific oversight of degenerative tissue risk, for the space radiation program element. So if you missed it, I talked with Dr. Mike Barrett last week. He's a NASA astronaut. And he gave a nice overview of all five hazards, including radiation. And as a space traveler himself and a medical doctor, he gave a nice two-minute overview of why we're concerned about radiation in the first place and what we know so far. What exactly, you said, you know, from, from small effects to you know, lethal effects of radiation. What exactly is radiation doing to the human body? So when we think about spaceflight radiation, we're mostly concerned with charged particles, which are electrons and protons and and some heavier particles that are basically stellar products coming from supernova explosions and energized gas clouds. And uh, I will have to caveat that by saying we also have issues with neutrons because those can be formed by interaction of these heavy particles with structure. Mm-hmm. But these are traveling very fast and they, they possess a lot of energy. And so when they hit something that's of value to us, such as macromolecules like DNA, they can actually induce direct damage. And if you get a large enough dose, they can actually kill cells uh, it's some of those smaller doses that, that we're a little bit uh, concerned about because they can damage DNA in such a way, in fact, many different ways that can potentially cause cancers, hmm. uh, cause uh, lethality from, from cancers many years after your exposures. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what dose and what charged particle will affect, will cause what effect on, on the human body. And so that's one of our major areas of interest in uh, research. Do we have radiation studies on the International Space Station? Absolutely. So just like a radiation technologist or a nuclear energy worker, we have a very highly monitored environment, and uh, every crew member wears a radiation badge, just like any of those people in those industries that I mentioned. We have area detectors which map out the radiation exposure of each area of the space station, and we have, uh, furthering our suite of detectors, charged particle directional detectors, which tell you what the charges are and from what direction they come. And those are the particles that, that come in from the sun and from galactic cosmic rays. And of course, we have our ground observations. And we, we composite all those together, along with satellite data as well. And we get the best picture we can of the radiation environment for low Earth orbit. So that clip was uh, from last week's episode. It was called Dr. Spaceman, where we go through Dr. Barrett's story and an overview of the five hazards. But today we're diving deep into the first part on radiation with Dr. Zarana Patel. So with no further delay, let's go right to it. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light, sir, for the red. There she goes. 
Zorana, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about uh, radiation. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, this is an interesting, interesting concept because uh, it's something that I think is one of the main concerns. I would, I would almost assume, whenever people talk about, well, what do we need to be worried about whenever we go out into space? Radiation is just always one of those things that comes up. Um, but I want to start with the question of why is radiation such a concern? What do we have to be worried about? Yeah, uh, and the real, the pretty significant thing there is that it, the type of radiation you're going to encounter in space is different than the types of radiation we encounter here on Earth. Hmm. Um, in space, you're exposed to this thing called HZE radiation, so that stands for high Z, which is atomic mass, and high E, which is energy. So these these heavy ions, they have a lot of mass, they have a lot of energy, um, and in that way they are very different from gamma rays or x-rays that we're going to see on Earth. They're densely ionizing, which means that as they move along their target volume, they have the ability to cause a lot of damage within this one core track. And they also have these little offshoots from the core track called delta rays. So these delta rays can also go off to neighboring cells or volumes and cause additional damage. So for something sensitive like DNA, where one hit can be a point of failure, right? One hit can cause a mutation that can propagate into further damage. It can propagate into cancer. Um, when one hit is a point of failure and you have a lot of complex damage that you can't repair, it becomes a big problem. And you're talking about the human body, right? You're talking mm -hmm. about when the when this heavy, this, this space form of radiation hits a living organism. Exactly. Um, the other difference is that in space, there's the uh, type of dose rate that is in space. It's different. It's a lot of chronic exposure, ever present, but at low doses. Whereas on Earth, you get single X-ray or CT scan. You know, it's a single 15-minute exposure or an hour exposure, and then you're done f until the next time. Hmm. Yeah, so when I go to the dentist and they do the snapshot, it's really just a quick second thing. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but this long form, and that's why, you know, when I was go when I go to the dentist, they put on this mm -hmm. big lead vest, right? And then they shoot me with radiation, and, and the and the dental hygienist is going around the corner because, you know, she's, they yeah. don't want to be a part of it. So, um, you know, even just that little bit, everyone's, like, real nervous yeah, about. Yeah, and, and um, I think it, it is important to note that on Earth we have radiation protection standards. So, mm -hmm. likewise, we have radiation protection standards for any astronauts we send into space. And the hard thing would be controlling and and, mon and keeping those standards with a such a persistent presence of it. That's got to be pretty challenging. The monitoring of it is actually fairly straightforward really? now. Um, it wasn't always like that, but now that we've developed um, newer technologies, newer um, dosimeters, things that measure the radiation, um, things like the MSL RAD, um, tool on Curiosity rover went from here to Mars and on its way there it took radiation it took measurements of the radiation environment so now we have a really good idea of what's happening from here to Mars hmm. and on the surface of Mars so um, a lot of this data we're compiling um, 
and, and keeping track of so we understand what the space radiation environment is going to be like when we actually send humans there hmm. and back. So you understand the environment. I guess where the questions lie is what happens to the human body, right? Yeah, there is huge uncertainty in terms of the biological responses for these space radiation exposures. So that's where a lot of our research within the human research program focuses on quantifying the biological responses and then doing what we can to mitigate them. Right. Yeah, and, and if, if I'm going to the dentist and they're going around the corner when I'm getting blasted with x-rays, I'm sure no one's really going to sign up for to get blasted with you know, radiation as uh, to find out what happens to the human body. Yeah, no one's, uh, unfortunately, we cannot irradiate people. <laughs> um, <laughs> you say that from a scientific perspective. Yes, yeah. yes, of course. So we rely heavily on animal and cellular models um, to, to gather the evidence we need to characterize the risk from space radiation and, and to, to evaluate countermeasures. Okay, so what's the technique there? What are we What are we doing to, most, to find out? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, most most of the elements here at NASA rely on some form of ground analog to do a lot of their testing, and hmm. we have a similar one called the NASA Space Radiation Laboratory. It's housed at Brookhaven National Labs, and it's basically this um, top-of-the-line facility probably the most sophisticated facility in the world where wow. you can simulate space radiation exposures. Um, it also has a nice uh, facility on site for biological experiments, which which is essential since we are using animal and cellular models. So it combines this capability to do long-term animal studies and cellular work along with a heavy ion accelerator. Hmm. So what do what do they show us? What are we beginning to understand with these with these tests? So to date, there are four health risks from space radiation exposure that we um, identify. The first one is cancer, hmm. um, the risk of radiation-induced carcinogenesis, and that includes epithelial cancers and leukemias. Um, and this is actually the biggest contributor to this permissible exposure limit that it, that's the standard we set for our astronauts. Um, the next one is the risk of in-flight and late CNS decrement. So CNS is central nervous system. Hmm. And basically it's the risk of uh, behavioral or cognitive decrements either in-flight or late post-mission, which can manifest in um, neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's. Oh, wow. And this one we're targeting uh, pathology that can have commonalities between those disorders and cardiovascular disease, which brings me to the next risk, which is the risk of radiation-induced cardiovascular disease. But it's not just cardiovascular disease. It includes things like cataracts and other degenerative tissue effects, such as immune decrements, uh, respiratory and digestive dysfunction, early aging or premature aging. Um, And finally, the last one is the risk of acute radiation syndromes. This is really a specific one for solar flares, or what we call solar particle events. So this one is a more um, intermittent but large dose exposure from a solar flare. Hmm. And you have things like skin burns, prodromal responses, nausea. This one is fairly effectively shielded against. Really? Okay. And is it, it nausea? It sounds like a short-term thing. It would be like you would go through this blast and it'd be sort of a short-term thing, whereas this sounds like, you know, cancer and, and cataracts, they seem like very long-term effects. Yeah, there's there's these acute effects and there's these late effects, yeah. and the latency between the two is can can vary, you know, in terms of minutes to decades. Um, so for acute radiation syndrome, you will manifest things immediately and over a period of months, but 
the radiation exposure you get initially will also contribute to your late effects of cancer, sinus decrements, and cardiovascular disease. Because hmm. okay. your radiation exposures are accumulated. I see. I see. Now, this is... Um this has got to be related to a lot of other effects too because you know looking at radiation specifically now there's there's all these other hazards that we're going to talk about in this in this series uh, the isolation distance from earth uh, the fluid shifts and, and some of the um, and some of the effects of the altered gravity uh, that are going to compound um, based on these radiations is radiation um, are, are you looking at other areas as well beyond radiation and how radiation might amplify these effects? Yes, for sure. Um, the chief scientist always likes to say that the body is experiencing this whole body outcome in space. You're not really experiencing any one of these hazards as a standalone. So you have to account for the fact that there might be um, additive responses or synergistic responses or antagonistic responses. So does radiation simply add on with microgravity or altered gravity? Mm -hmm. Or are they synergistic in that in that they can cause an even larger effect than either two alone combined? Wow. Alone or combined? Or do they, when combined, cause a decreased effect? Huh. So these are things that we definitely have within our knowledge gaps for these four risks and we do have to evaluate whether or not they're acting in, in any kind of interactive manner with these other hazards. Well, let's let's start with kind of what we know, starting from the beginning. You know, we're look we're um, starting to venture farther into space in the '60s, uh, especially during the Apollo program. Uh, Apollo 8 was the first time that uh, astronauts actually went past low Earth orbit, and now we're going towards the moon. Um, what is the radiation environment that they? sort of went on, and a lot of the other Apollo astronauts after them, too. What, what was the radiation environment like for them? So with, with the early programs, they were obviously very short durations, hmm. and they were at lower, relatively lower altitudes. The radiation exposures there were fairly, fairly low, and their concern was mostly solar particle events. Hmm. But as the mission architecture changed, you were going to higher altitudes, longer durations, and be, now beyond low Earth orbit. Um, you do have to account for the galactic cosmic radiation that's going to be omnipresent. And basically with increasing time, you have increasing exposure to GCR. So you are going to have a lot of deep space radiation exposures on your way to from Earth to Mars and back. You're going to have to account for that. And then for a three-year Mar Mars mission, it's going to be a about an order of magnitude higher than the current levels of exposures we're seeing right now on the ISS. Hmm. Do we know if the radiation levels would sort of plateau after a certain point and they've done their damage and that's that's as far as it's going to go? Or will it be seriously keep being worse and worse the longer that they're out there? That, that's an interesting question. I don't know if there will be a plateau or not, but I think the question right now of whether or not there's a threshold dose is important for things like the risk of heart disease. Oh, okay. So the heart and cardiovascular system is a fairly what they call resistant system, it can take some damage and, and still output in terms of function normally. So this is called a deterministic risk. There's a threshold dose at which you will start seeing effects. So current evidence to date suggests that the risk of heart disease has a threshold dose, and right now it might be about half a gray. But as people are reanalyzing re the, the epidemiological data and more data is coming in, there are suggestions that there actually may be lower and lower thresholds or no mm -hmm. threshold at all. 
that makes it a deter uh, that makes it go from a deterministic risk to a probabilistic risk like cancer which means that any radiation exposure uh, accounts for includes some level of risk so for example on a mars mission when you're nearing half a gray levels of radiation exposure that's that's at the level of a threshold dose for radiation induced heart disease that's when we become concerned now um what's what's a gray a half a gray what's that so the gray is a standard unit of measure for radiation, how much you're actually absorbing in your body. But that can be translated in terms of biological effects using some kind of quality factors. So you might absorb half a gray in your body, but biologically your body might feel like it's one, you might absorb half a gray in your body, but biologically your body might feel like you're getting one, 1. 1.2 sieverts of damage and the sievert is sort of this scaling factor or ends up being a scaling parameter to account for the quality difference from space radiation and other earth exposures so if you absorb half a gray of space radiation exposure it might feel like one gray of gamma exposure hmm. and that's what the sievert sort of translates into so is from your perspective you know studying radiation and sort of kind of understanding these these thresholds these limits is there a limit to how long we can spend out in space before we have to come home yes so nasa sets the permissible exposure limits right now the limit is at three percent excess read so it's three percent excess risk of death from cancer hmm. um and this this excess career limit is the same for both men and women but the risk function, it's a function of age, head exposure, sex, and smoking status. Mm -hmm. So we know that the older you are, the less likely you are to have an increased risk of cancer from radiation exposure. We also know that there's some evidence suggesting that women are more sensitive to radiation exposure um, and certain types of cancers as a result than men. So yes, your career limit is going to be the same for all crew, but depending on your age, sex status, and smoking status, the number of safe days that you can spend in space will vary. Hmm. So I guess Mars missions are going to be pretty tough. That's several years. Yes, three years is a long time, and, and the accumulated dose there is going to be pushing the permissible exposure limits that we have right now. Wow. So what do we know based on some of our studies on the International Space Station? One of the best parts is that it's a platform for understanding how the human body reacts to to being in space. Now, we're, there's some a little bit of uh, extra shielding, I guess, from the magnetic sphere, right? Then maybe we would get further out into space. So radiation, um, I guess we're still learning a little bit, but I guess not as much as we would in space travel. So what do we know now? Well, in terms of the ISS, the it's in low Earth orbit. So like you mentioned, it is protected by the Earth's magnetosphere from a lot of GCR. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Mm. Um, and the six-month missions and the one-month missions that we're currently doing, you're going to receive a fairly low amount of radiation. Of course, if you're flying multiple missions, they will accumulate, like I mentioned. Right. So but with low Earth orbit, there, your risk is still within the, the limits that we set. Hmm. When you go to the moon, and depending on the, the mission architecture for the moon and then the deep space, uh, deep space sorties, you will be pushing the limits that we set for both men and women. Hmm. As far as these studies on the ISS, like I said, because these doses are so low, within the human cohort, the human astronaut cohort, you really can't ex 
distinguish a single from signal from radiation versus the noise that you're going to get. So for example, if you take a look at radiation-induced heart disease, the entire astronaut cohort is probably 350, give or take. Um, if you look at, if you try to identify, is there an increased risk of space radiation-induced heart disease in that cohort, you won't be able to find a signal that is statistically significant. So we know there's a risk because in epidemiological studies, these are human uh, ground studies from terrestrial exposures, these cohort sizes go from tens of thousands of people. So when you consider a cohort that's 350 to tens of thousands of people, mm-hmm. you can better distinguish the signal from the radiation-induced heart disease compared to the noise. So we know that there is a risk. We just can't identify it in a smaller cohort like the astronaut cohort. Hmm. So we have to rely heavily on the terrestrial data as well as all the data that we're going to compile at the NASA Space Radiation Laboratory. Right. Are you doing um, different sorts of tests in the uh, NASA Space Radiation Laboratory, are you, or are you just doing the same tests with a lot of samples? Yeah, we do. We rely on animal studies mostly, and we have the development of this GCR simulator facility, which hmm. will have the capability to cycle through multiple ions and simulate the reference field, which is basically what you would experience in space. The GCR reference field in space is very complex. You can have a number of ions represented in that field, um, you know, maybe up to 20 ions. But on the ground, we're not going to use 20 ions. Maybe we'll simplify it to five and cycle through them repeatedly to expose animals to that kind of field. You also have to account for the dose rate. You have to give the animals the small dose over a large period of time to simulate the Mars exposure. Hmm. So those are the kinds of tests we're going to be doing. So how how well do these tests, you know, we're talking about cells, we're talking about animals, how well do they translate to understanding what's going to happen to the human body? Yeah, that is a, that is a very good question and one of the biggest challenges that people who use and rely on animal models have in general. How well do these animal and cell data that we're going to collect translate and how can we translate them to the human condition, to the astronaut condition? Hmm. So we rely, we have to rely on this vertical and horizontal translation paradigm. So vertical translation just means going from bench to bedside, going from the lab bench, including biologists, chemists, and including all the way up to the top, the clinicians that are going to be implementing this kind of work and interacting with the humans. And then the horizontal translation just means going from different, just being interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary. Hmm. We're going to talk to physicists. We're going to talk to modelers. We're going to talk to epidemiologists. We're going to talk to biologists and chemists. We're going to talk to managers and and design um, and vehicle design people as well. So you have to include basically this whole entire field to account for translation from a cell or an animal to a human. Right, because you don't want to be isolated to just your perspective. No. You This grander perspective really helps you understand what's going to happen, right? Exactly. Yeah. So you said you're mostly uh, from the biological perspective, but you know, having someone that understands physics maybe a little bit more can help you understand. Exactly, and I think that's where my bioengineering background really comes into play here because I was able to experience not just the biological aspect, but working towards the engineering aspect. And and the final goal for bioengineering is to apply it to the human condition. So in that sense, it was really helpful for me to sort of bridge the gap between, for example, the way the language a physicist might use 
compared to the language that a biologist might use, compared to the language that a modeler might use. Um, in that in that case, sometimes people are talking past themselves and they don't <laughs> even realize it because they're not talking in the same language. Right. So it helps to sort of uh, communicate between the, these different kinds of mindsets. Right. You guys are experts in your fields, and so you have kind of your own jargon. But mm-hmm. then another expert with its own jargon is trying to tell you that person, you know, his his or her perspective, and maybe kind of you're not speaking the same language. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and, and of course in NASA we use, you know, on top of that, we use acronyms to <laughs> confuse people additionally. But, you know, I, th- I think a great example of how just how complex the radiation issue is, is if you think, if you go back in your mind to this very small ion, that's a, that's the physics level here. So we, you're involving physicists, both basic and applied physicists. And as it encounters DNA and is doing all this damage, you're looking at chemistry, radiochemistry. So now you have a radiochemist come into play here. And then you propagate your damage into the cells, into multiple tissues. You're at a biological level here. Hmm. And then these multiple tissues are interacting in the whole body system. You're at a clinical level. And you have to take all of these things into consideration when you're you know, doing vehicle design, doing mission architecture, doing radiation mitigation and countermeasure planning. Hmm. Well, let's go back to your expertise, which is in bioengineering. That's something that's a little bit over my head. What's bioengineering kind of, what's that field look like? I chose bioengineering because it is, it is this attraction of being able to do whatever it is you want to do. Huh. Bioengineering really takes biology and then aspects of any kind of engineering. So if you're really interested in computers, you could do data data informatics. You can weed out data and data informatics is actually a huge field right now because there's a lot of data that people are collecting and we don't know how to weed it out in terms of genomics, proteomics, transcriptomics. And we have to have people who are smart enough to take these data sets and weed out data that is important versus data that is noise and so on. So that's computer systems engineering. If you want to do uh, something like mechanical engineering, for example, let's take 3D printing. If you want to 3D print a thumb or a hand for someone, that requires not just mechanical engineering, but ideas uh, for that requires not just mechanical engineering, but a concept of biomechanics as well. How do you fit this mechanical thing you've created to the human that you're going to need to use it for. So that's mechanical engineering. Um, electrical engineering is also a huge, huge field with bioengineering. And these these memory chips, things that you can implant in yourself or on yourself, right, to do telemetry, to do telemetry diagnosis for yourself. For example, if I wanted to slap slap a, a sticker on myself to measure my blood, my sweat saline concentrations or my sugar levels, they are developing things to do that as well. Hmm. Bioengineering has this huge potential that you can you can target it to whatever it is you want to do. Yeah. As long as you apply it to the human condition. Right. Yeah. It seems like how does technology? That's exactly it. How does technology fit with biology? That's really that sounds like kind of what it is. And meshing those two fields. Yeah. And how can you use technology that's available and modify it to advance the human condition? So how, um, how does this help with your understanding of radiation and how that affects the human? I, I think it's just in the sense that it, I had a pers- uh, perspective of the multidisciplinary nature of things that you can apply to the radiation problem, which does span this huge um, gap, not this huge spectrum from physics to 
clinic. Mm-hmm. So then, so your field in in bioengineering um, really kind of helps you to understand the effects. Ma- mainly, it sounds like the the human body. That's really that's really the focus here. Now, I'm sure radiation has impacts on on some engineering components too, and structure and whatever. We'll focus mainly on the on the human body. Now, as we're going to destinations like the moon, like Mars, what is the radiation environment like? Let's go, let's skip the moon for now and go to Mars. Um, What is the radiation environment like on Mars? So on the surface of Mars, actually the dose rates are going to be similar to what a crew on ISS will see. Hmm. The composition will be a little bit different, but the dose rates are very similar. So ISS, you're getting a lot of shielding from the Earth's magnetosphere. So you don't get the high ener- you don't get the low energy GCR, but you do get a potential for solar flares, and you get some higher energy GCR. If you move outside of ISS orbit to the moon, your dose rates are about one and a half times that of the ISS. Wow. Then you go to deep space. That's where you don't have any protection from the magnetosphere or a planetary body. You have risk of solar flares, and you have GCR, which is always present. So your dose rates can raise can range your dose rates can range from two to three times that of the ISS that is where you're accumulating a lot of the dose once you get to Mars Mars has an atmosphere that can provide some protection it also provides protection just by its planetary body system so it can shield some GCR in that sense which is why the dose rates again come down to approximately the same as the ISS Mm -hmm. so it's mainly that's interesting. I, I was always, I always thought that the radiation environment on Mars was much worse. But I guess if you take all of these different things into perspective, one thing that I thought was curious was just being on a planetary body, or even the moon. Being on the moon gives you a little bit of protection. How's that working? Exactly. It's called planetary shielding because you have a sphere, and the GCR is just always present. It's omnipresent, so it's surrounding the sphere. But if you're on the surface of the sphere, wherever the planet is blocking you from the GCR is where you're getting protection from it. So mm. the ground itself is providing some protection from GCR, and that way you're only getting GCR from maybe 180 degrees. Huh. So I guess what's nice about Mars is that it is a planet, um, so I guess there is that element of being a planet, and you know you don't have that radiation coming from the other side. Could you maybe burrow underground and use more of the planet to give you more protection? Will that work? Yes, for sure. The um, the planet dirt, I think you can. it's called regolith. You can use that as a shield around yourself. Mm. But you also have to account for these things called uh, uh, secondary particles. So any particles that make it through and impact the dirt that you're surrounded by will fragment in that volume and create additional secondary particles. Yeah. So they interact more and more with the shield, with the, whether it's shielding or the structure of your house or the dirt that you're surrounded by, they're going to generate secondaries that can still impact you, biologically speaking. Hmm. Regolith, though, is, is regolith, um, I thought that was on airless bodies. Is that just the moon? Or is it, is it I guess, Mars, is that soil? Yeah, is Martian, there's Martian regolith, there's lunar regolith. Regolith, okay, okay. Um, yeah, so that that just gives you just that little bit of protection. So maybe, yeah, it, would that if you're, let's say, a mission to Mars, uh, let's just say around three years, you know, in a mission profile, you're going out, let's say nine month transit. You have to stay there for, I guess, upwards of a year. 
I guess, using the planet around you to reduce that amount of exposure, now that buys you a little bit of time. Because, you, you know, you said as you're out in uh, space, the clock is ticking mm -hmm. for how much exposure, radiation exposure you're getting. Maybe that'll give you a little bit extra protection. Yes, for sure. The problem is when you go and come back is where you're getting the largest dose. Yeah. And the shielding there is going to be difficult on the vehicle because it will require a large mass of shielding. Um, and it, it is not likely to be cost efficient. Hmm. Yeah, so, okay, so let's go there. Let's go to the interplanetary part. This is where the, the th you're getting three times the amount, I guess, um, of, is it three times the amount of Earth or three times the amount of ISS? Three times the amount of ISS. Of ISS, okay, so three times the amount. So this is where you're going to have that, that largest impact. What sort of technology uh, can we look at? Let's see. Let, let's take away realistic technologies for a while and just say, what is the technology that's required that is going to provide you radiation protection? Well, if you can get there faster, that's probably the biggest thing. Sure. Because that minimizes the time you have to spend in so space. Propulsion. P propulsion is going to be the big one. Mm -hmm. uh, there's also been talk of magnetic shielding. Um, mm -hmm. As I maybe I didn't mention, but GCR is not on the electromagnetic spectrum. So on the electromagnetic spectrum, you have wavelengths that uh, on, the, on, the, on one end, you have very large, long wavelengths with low frequencies, um, things like radio waves and microwaves that you mentioned. And then you progress to higher and higher energies and higher and higher frequencies. So the light that we see is on the visible length spectrum, visible light spectrum. And then you have UV spectrum. And within this UV spectrum, you have the delineation between non-ionizing and ionizing radiation. So basically, ionizing radiation just means that the radiation has the capability to excite an electron and to knock it out of its out of the orbit of the home nucleus. Um, and non-ionizing radiation doesn't have that capability. So within the UV spectrum, UVA and lower energy UVB wavelengths are considered non-ionizing. And then the higher energy UVB and all of UVC is considered ionizing. And then after after beyond the UV spectrum, you have X-rays and gamma rays, which are the highest energy, um, highest frequency wavelengths. Mm -hmm. And those are definitely ionizing. But GCR, galactic cosmic rays, aren't even on the electromagnetic spectrum. They are techli technically not even rays. As I mentioned, they're heavy ions. Right. Um, right. Thing, electromagnetic wavelengths carry their energy in these little part um, little um, packets they carry these they carry the energy in these little packets called photons um, and photons can act as both light and wave particles but GCR is a ion it's a particle and it has a mass it has an electric charge and it can be affected by magnetic fields hmm. so it is definitely ionizing but it is not an electromagnetic wavelength so if you consider shielding, if you, if you want to have some kind of magnetic shield, it could potentially disrupt the GCR field around the, sh around the vehicle and in a way that the sun does or our Earth's magnetic magnetosphere does to protect us. Ah, okay. So generating sort of like a small, I guess, magnetic field. N I'm not sure that there... I'm not really sure about the details of it, but oh, okay. when you when you project a magnetic field around the vehicle, yeah. that in turn will disrupt the um, GCR flux that comes in. Okay. So I don't think it's it the interaction is generating the field. I think you have to generate the field, and then that protects you. Okay. 
I heard that water was a really good one too. Yes, water is really good because it has a low hydrocarbon chemical structure. And that means that these secondary ions can't really react with it too much. If you have something that's got a lot of hydrocarbons in there, then you have the potential to generate a lot of these damaging secondaries. So things like water or polyethylene Hmm. are really good shielding. And the good news is you're already going to have water on the vehicle. You're going to have to carry your water. Mm -hmm. So you, so there are, there are, um, schematics where, for example, for a solar particle event, you would go into one, one area and surround or repack the water bladders around your your habitat so that you could provide temporary shielding that way. Ah, okay. So solar flare is happens. We can detect it a little bit early. We got a little bit of time before we know it's going to hit the spacecraft, and then they get word, hey, shelter. So they go and surround themselves with water. Exactly. Okay. The problem is that uh, it's probably the water shielding is not sufficient to protect from GCR. So you would uh, need a lot of a lot of depth of water or polyethylene, which just isn't going to be realistic. Right. Yeah, you're not going to bring a pool with you no. to Mars. <laughs> no. uh, okay, so so let's go back. Uh, we we kind of mentioned, I think, briefly some of the effects that we know that are a cause of, um, of radiation or at least have some sort of impact. Um, going down the list, one of them was the cardiovascular system. What's happening there? So that's, that is a great question. What we think is happening is that radiation in general whether it's gamma rays or GCR, is causing endothelial dysfunction. So your vessels have different layers within them, and one layer is called the endothelial cells. And this is the layer that interacts with the blood. And when you have dysfunction of this layer, you can start creating um, barrier dysfunctions within it. You can also start creating adhesions of macrophages and immune cells. And that's the first step in atherosclerosis. Basically, you're laying down plaque into your arteries and when you have the endothelial barrier disrupted you start this process so this is what we think is happening with low levels of space radiation but the research program we have in place is doing a lot more work to characterize if that's exactly what's happening Hmm. now what about you said there was some effects on the brain too i mean you mentioned alzheimer's but one thing that i was thinking of is uh so i guess more of a real-time effect, I guess, if you're getting blasted with these particles, could could it potentially affect your mood and your emotions or, or the way that you interpret information? Anything like that happening in the brain? Yeah, there is a there is a risk for in, in-flight CNS decrements to happen. And so the research that to date that we've had in animal models suggests that, you know, at low doses, similar to what you might see in the Mars missions, you can potentially generate these kinds of decrements that can then go on and translate to mission affecting behaviors. Whether or not that's actually gonna happen is something that the research still has to play out. Hmm. And I think that uh, Dr. Tom Williams can talk more about that. Okay, okay, yeah, he'll be next in our series, so that'd be great. Um, You know, thinking about some of the, we were talking a little bit about the ways that we can protect from radiation, but like you said, this is a phenomenon that's all around us. It's, you said, omnipresent. Um, Is there a way that knowing that radiation might have, it's going to have an effect. You know, if we send astronauts beyond low Earth orbit, it's going to have an effect. Is there something we can do to maybe reverse the effects or or anything to to sort of help um, reverse the effects of of, uh, radiation? Yeah, so within our research, we've noticed that the commonality among these risks is 
there is a one commonality, and the commonality is chronic inflammation. So something that targets infl- inflammatory pathways would be a good first step to identifying countermeasure. Right now, we're looking at things like aspirin um, <laughs> and antioxidants. Those are the first tier. Um, these are these are categories of drugs that have already been clinically proven on the ground for safety and efficacy um, and in clinical trials. So there are FDA-approved drugs that you can use in case of these large accidental exposures for acute radiation syndrome. And that's a tier two drug that we can also consider. The third type of drug is thing, drugs that are being investigated to mitigate radiotoxicities after cancer therapy. So in the clinic, when people are getting radiotherapy, they are going to experience heart disease later on in their life. They're going to get secondary cancers from that radiation. Mm. And the, there's a huge field NIH is currently funding to develop mitigators for those radiotherapy-induced toxicities. Mm. And the fourth is very specific to space radiation. Are there drugs that we can use to target mechanisms or pathways that are radi- space radiation specific versus gamma or x-ray radiation specific. Hmm. These heavy ion mm-hmm. ones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I, I, one thing was um, talking about, we've talked a little bit about the effects, uh, you know, cardiovascular, things that are happening to the human body and these interdisciplinary efforts, you know, looking at not just radiation. One of them that you mentioned was cataracts and eye damage. I know just from talking with a lot of other experts that um, there is a there is a challenge with vision problems in astronauts just from being exposed to I guess the microgravity environment there's this fluid shift that happens and there's a lot of other factors uh, that may contribute to this now radiation it sounds like it's kind of an effect of its own what what's what are we learning there of how these disciplines are crossing and affecting the eyes the thing about cataracts in astronauts is that it's been long established um, as an effect of space radiation. And it's actually uh. the one uh, biological effect we know and we can see and identify and point to as a space radiation effect in this small astronaut cohort. They get it, um, we know it's from space radiation, and, and we know that we can mitigate it very easily. It's a simple, relatively simple surgery. Surgery. Okay. So it is a known space radiation effect, but NASA qual- um, quantifies it as a acceptable risk because the, the surgery for cataracts is fairly simple. It also manifests later on in life, and so it's not an in-mission risk. So the thing with the SANS risk, which stands for spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome, is that it's been only identified recently, and there's still a lot of data to be collected from that. They're not sure if it's caused by microgravity, if it's caused by fluid shifts, if it's caused by something else, elevated intracranial pressure. So hmm. the there may or may not be some kind of interaction with radiation as well. We just don't know yet. Yeah. Now, one thing about being a scientist and, and, you know, you're working in the NASA Space Radiation Laboratory, trying to get data points to understand what is happening, we're looking forward to going beyond low Earth orbit now. You know, we're talking about missions on the moon, missions to Mars. Let's go to the moon for a second, and let's assume we're we're in the middle of a long-duration stay on the moon. What scientifically, from a radiation perspective and a biological perspective, are you looking forward to? So a lot of the samples, the data we get from astronauts and crew involves blood samples. And what we can gather from those samples is, are there any chromosome aberrations within within those samples? What kind of DNA damage is happening? So I think that is a one very useful tool. We call it biodissymmetry. So it's a biological measure of 
biodosimetry, the radiation dose that you're going to get. I think the biodosimetry from a long duration mission, long duration mission at on the moon would be really useful. We don't have that data yet. Uh, other things that would be interesting to look at are same thing in the blood samples, looking at biomarkers that are of interest for all four of our risks. So cancer, CNS, and cardiovascular disease. Other things that we could look at would be the cardiovascular morphology, doing an echocardiogram on the heart, or doing an MRI on the brain, or even on the heart itself, to look and see if there are early markers, subclinical but early markers that we can use to identify potential downstream effects and mitigate mm. them earlier. Hmm. Yeah, so a lot of a lot of data that we can get really, and, and to help us understand the environment. Um, so can you tell us about some of the more recent studies that you've been doing um, for in terms of radiation, maybe in the NASA Space Radiation Laboratory? Yes, we are planning. So NSRL actually has three runs a year, spring, summer, and fall. In this fall, 18C, we're planning to do the first test of our GCR simulator. Hmm. So we're going to irradiate animals and test out the scheme that we have to simulate the space radiation GCR field. We're going to irradiate them with six days a week. We're going to irradiate them with this schema, these five ion beams plus hydrogen and proton. And we're going to see what happens to these animals over varying lengths of time. And in that way, we hope to simulate a three-year Mars mission and the endpoints that we might see in the human cohort. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. So that so it's coming up this fall. Where where is it again? Is it is it on? Here Na- at NASA? The Na- yeah, the NASA Space Radiation Laboratory is housed at Brookhaven National Laboratory. It's on Long Island. Long Island. Okay. So you're going out to New York. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. They have a long. So Brookhaven National Labs has a very large linear accelerator, um, and what they do is they pull off a little bit of the large beam and route it down to NASA Space Radiation Laboratory. And that's a very simplified way of what's happening with all the physics of it. <laughs> but in, in that way that we can then sort of piggyback off the large linear accelerator. Yeah, it's not, you know, when you say, oh, yeah, we have to simulate this uh, galactic cosmic ray, you know, this galactic cosmic background radiation, that's uh, not an easy thing, no, it doesn't sound like. No, it's not, it's not easy at all. And as I said, this is probably the only facility in the world that is capable of doing it to date. Wow. Yeah, we were talking uh, we were talking a little bit about everyone always asks us um, uh, you know, where's your where's your zero G room? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like we have a room where you can just sort of flip a switch yeah. and oh yeah, we're in microgravity. It's so much more complicated than that when you get into it. Yeah, you have to take every ground analog with a grain of salt obviously. Yeah. But you also have to use what you can with the limitations of only being able to send a limited number of people for a limited number of times into space with a limited budget. Yeah. Now, I know there's a lot of uh, ground analogs here. There's some, you know, that's some are sort of simulating a Mars habitat. You know, you're living in space, or I guess, simulated for for X number of days, whether it's, you know, I guess Hera does 45-day mission, 40, missions now, and there's the Mars 500, you got Antarctica. Yeah, things like Hera, where they take a crew of three or four people and they isolate them in a similar vehicle-type format for varying numbers of days. You know, I think they started at, like, something like five days, and now they're up to 45 days. Mm-hmm. Um, you can really get a feel for how does some how do some of these other hazards, like isolation and confinement, affect the human. And not just the human, but 
their interactions with other humans. Uh, is that a <laughs> this is this is kind of goes back to this uh, you know what's happening to um, the radiation and how it affects our mood. Can you imagine if you're in this closed box with you know five other people on a journey to Mars and all of a sudden this radiation is making you a little antsy or anything like that? That would be that would be unfortunate. Yes. Yeah, so the risk of radiation versus the risk of uh, behavioral health and performance it's going to be a really difficult issue to tease out. At what point are you seeing the effects from radiation? At what points are you seeing the effects from isolation and confinement or distance from Earth? And how can you treat one when when you don't really know? Maybe there's a different pathway that radiation is acting versus the way that you know your normal stress response is acting. It's going to be a very, very difficult question. Hmm. So I want to kind of end with this, and that's, um, you know, radiation, it just sounds like I'm going to use the word omnipresent again just because you've used it. And it's, it's a good word to describe what's happening in the environment that we're going into. It's just radiation's everywhere. It's just a dangerous place. And yet we still want to explore. Why do you think that is? Why do you think despite all these dangers and the risks that are associated with sending humans out that there's still this drive to want to explore? For me, I got sucked in to NASA very early on because I love to read. And... Uh, my brother sort of introduced me to sci-fi, and in that moment I was hooked. So I read all the sci-fi grades. I read Asimov, Bradbury. Um, and for me it is really this long-term goal of manned spaceflight and exploration into the cosmos that is worth the risk. Yeah, there's still a lot to explore. I mean, just recently Scott Kelly spent a year in space, um, more than uh, any other NASA astronaut before him. And that gave us a good perspective of, you know, you're talking about six-month missions and, and the time that we're, I guess, allowed are, are supposed to spend uh, in space and have this effect of radiation. Was there, was there anything we know based on that study of spending what spending longer period of time in space will do from a radiation perspective? Yeah, there was, there was a lot of discussion about how Scott, when he came back, um, the whole event changed his genes. And... I think it's important to note that his genes weren't actually changed. Him and hmm. him and Mark are actually still twins. But uh, <laughs> what ha- what did change was the gene expression. So what happens when you live for a year anywhere is that you have the environment that you're surrounded by change you. And this is sort of the nurture part of nature versus nurture. So nature is genes, and his genes didn't change. But the nurture part where the environment was different, it did affect him. So... Even if you spent a year of your life and you went on a diet or you had sleeping habits change, you had a baby or you changed a job, you would experience epigenetic changes in that year of life. Ah. So when he came back, actually, the level of change that we saw was f- fairly similar to something like a human might, might experience in a stressful environment, like if you went scuba diving or if you were climbing Mount Everest. So nurture is the environment. and within the space radiation environment, you've talked about these five hazards. There's isolation, confinement, distance from Earth, radiation, and the whole body outcome is that you're exposed to all five of these simultaneously, and it's really difficult to say that one is responsible for these genetic expression changes in Scott. Um, You're not going to be able to tease that out based on one person. He had a whole body response, and it's similar to someone uh, spending a year of their life in a stressful situation away from family. But with the level, the actual levels of changes he saw within six months of returning to Earth, 
most of them went back to pre-flight levels, but only 7% persisted to date. So that means that 7% of the gene, the ways that his genes are expressed is changed. And that's considered fairly minimal. Now that's only a year on the ISS, which is a fairly low dose radiation environment. You know he's close to Earth, there are return options. Um, with the three-year Mars missions, there is gonna be increased risk. But I think, I think the risk for, obviously the risk for these uh, crew is worth it. They are willing to go and do these things. Um, and it is hard, but I think we should em- enable them in every way we can. I think that is the whole point of our uh, human research program. I, a lot of the guests I talk to is, you know, there's so much that we don't know. That's like a big theme is there's so much that we don't know. So you got to have the bold astronauts that are willing to be like, you know, raise their hand and be like, I'll do it. I'll be the person where you can study me and figure out what happens to me. And that way we can understand what happens and more people can go. Uh, because I feel like a lot of people do want to go. There's a lot oh. of people already signing up. They're like, yeah, I'll go to Mars. <laughs> yes, for sure, because because it, the risk is worth it. And yeah. if they're willing to take that risk, then we need to do our best to mitigate the risk for them. And I'm glad that you're on the front lines helping out uh, from the radiation perspective. Zorana, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing this perspective of what happens uh, to, the, to the human body in the radiation environment. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you guys for this opportunity. Of course. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Zorana Patel about that first hazard, radiation. So we have four more to go. If you want to see the overview again, again, the last episode that we did was with Dr. Mike Barrett, and he went over th- all five hazards. Uh, otherwise, you can go to nasa.gov HRP. We're working with the Human Research Program here at NASA uh, to put these five episodes together for you. And uh, while we're releasing these episodes, you can go to that website and check out some of the products that they have that are associated with some of these topics. So you can go there right now and check out some of the stuff they have on radiation. Otherwise, you can see what we're doing at the International Space Station, real-time uh, research going on at nasa.gov ISS, and then, of course, the social media accounts on uh, the NASA Johnson Space Center and the International Space Station. Go to any one of those accounts, use the hashtag AskNASA, mention Houston, we have a platform, and ask a question. <laughs> Houston, we have a platform. Houston, we have a podcast on your favorite platform. There it is. And then ask a question, uh, and we'll put it on the podcast. We've done it a bunch of times before and even made whole episodes out of it. So this episode was recorded on June 29th, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Bill Stafford, Bill Pulaski, Judy Hayes, Cedra Reyna, Mel Whiting, and Natalie Gogans. And thanks again to the radiation expert, Zarana Patel, for coming on the show. We'll be back next week with part two of the five hazards of human spaceflight discussing isolation and confinement. See you then.